For the months of May and June, we've been on an eight-week journey through the book of Philippians. And we, um, you know, all throughout the year, we have several um, sermon series that are planned out, and this is one of them. For me, it's really exciting to be able to go through an entire book, and by the end of it, be able to look back and see that you can see the thread, you know, the themes, uh, and all the different nuances that you don't really pick up when you're just doing like a few verses at a time. But that's the, the great thing about a sermon series, that we can get to plow through, comb through the entire letter of Philippians, uh, and by the end of the eight weeks, hopefully have a much better and clearer understanding of this book. And so if we can uh, look uh, up here on the slides, you know, the first week we preach on rejoicing the fellowship of the saints, what it means to actually gather as a people of God. We also preached on rejoicing over afflictions and how that brings great glory to Christ. We talked about rejoicing in our sanctification, how everything that God has started in us, he will finish to completion. Last week, we talked about rejoicing in fellowship of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And that was probably the first time many of us had heard the name Epaphroditus and what it looks like to live a servant life in line with as we follow the greatest servant of all, Jesus Christ. And today, we're launching right into Philippians chapter 3. And we are going to be preaching on rejoicing that our hope, all of our hope, is in the person of Jesus Christ. In our house churches uh, this past week or the week before, depending on where you are within the curriculum, uh, we've been... Right, discussing the Olivet Discourse, Matthew's, Matthew 24 and 25. And one of the really important questions that we brought up and we wrestled with this past week or the week before was, how do you actually know that you're saved? How, how can you actually tell that you are saved? This is a very uncomfortable question, but very, very necessary question. Trust me, if you don't wrestle with it now, you'll wrestle with it later. It's going to come up sooner or later. And so very honestly, very vulnerably being able to wrestle with this question and come out the other side with confidence that you belong to God, confidence that he is working in you. It is so essential. I would say it's almost indispensable in the life of every believer. And so if you've walked your entire life going to church, walk your entire life assuming, oh, I must be a Christian because I go to church, right? That's, that makes me a Christian, I guess. My parents were Christian. My grandparents were Christian. I guess that makes me a Christian. This is a really important time for us, for ourselves to be able to re-examine our faith, be able to ask the difficult questions and be able to come out of it knowing personally and knowing more deeply that we do belong to God. And so with that said, um, today's message has a bit to do with that. And so it's very, a very happy coincidence that it coincided with what we're talking about in house churches. We're going to turn together to Philippians chapter three. We're going to go through verses one through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you have your physical Bibles with you, I always encourage you um, to look through your physical Bible. If not, your phones, or we have some slides that we prepared for you. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And it reads, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is Apostle Paul speaking not just hypothetically, This is someone who has lived his entire life according to a different gospel. The gospel of, man, you got to earn it. You better not mess up. As long as you are in line with these different commandments, you're probably good. And he lived his entire life according to those rules until he met the person of Jesus Christ. Until he encountered Jesus Christ face to face. And in that moment, that impact of that moment of meeting the son of God and being able to see his beauty, his glory, his perfection. All those things that he had accumulated up until then. He realized only then, only in that moment that All those things that he took so much pride in. All those things that he could have written out in his resume. All those things that he he had spent his entire life building up towards. All those things are nothing but rubbish. They're nothing but trash. They are worthless compared to knowing Jesus. And so it's from this person who has lived this personally. Who has lived this out day in and day out. It's from this person's pen that we hear this exhortation today to count all those things as loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ. To give you a little bit of historical context, in the early church days, right? Did you know that Christianity was a mostly Jewish religion? It sounds kind of weird to think about it that way. You think about Christianity, there's like uh, Judaism, and then there's like, I don't know, like, Uh, Hinduism, and then there's Islam, and you, you think about them as very separate religions. But in the early church days, Christianity was a mainly Jewish religion. It was Jews that abided by the Moses, uh, the Mosaic law. They were the ones who were being converted. Not, you know, they wouldn't even consider being converted. Their eyes were open to the Messiah, and from that place, they were living out their Christian life. 
For them, it wasn't like, oh, I stopped being a Jew and now I became a Christian and now I'm going to live as a Christian. For them, it was like, I was a Jew and now I'm a real Jew. Like now I believe in the Messiah, I've seen the Messiah, and now I'm going to live my life out like a real Jew. Now this posed a problem when this gospel began to spread to Gentile nations. All of a sudden that question came to the forefront of like, well, if you have to buy by Mosaic law, and this is a Jewish-ish religion, then shouldn't even Gentiles who have become Christian, shouldn't they abide by Jewish tradition? And the, the one uh, point of contention, it was circumcision. I'm not going to go into detail. If you don't know what circumcision is, Google that. <laughs> I'm not going to go into that. I'm not here to do that. But yes, yeah, so a point of contention was circumcision. And it's a pretty big decision, right? Um, so it wasn't like, eh, yeah, whatever. Maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll get circumcised. Maybe I won't. It was a very big point of contention. The question was, as a Gentile believer, imagine I'm a Greek Christian. I never grew up in the Jewish faith. I'm not ethnically, culturally, and spiritually. I'm not Jew. I'm not a Jewish person. As a Greek Christian believer, am I also supposed to get circumcised if I believe in Christ? Is Christ's sacrifice enough? Or do I need to do these additional rituals, these additional things that would mark me as a person of God? And so this is a major, major question that is being addressed in the early church days. Circumcision was one of the things that marked a Jewish person. But as Christianity began to spread to non-Jews, that question came to the forefront. It begged the question, is the sacrifice of Jesus enough? Is Christ enough? Or do we need to circumcise Gentiles who believe in Jesus? And this is Paul's resounding, thundering answer as someone who had lived his entire life as a Jew of the Jews. Like he, he went the whole nine yards. He did everything that a good Jew was supposed to do. And from his mouth... This is his response to that question. Jesus alone can save us from our lack and our failure. Jesus alone, not circumcision and Jesus, not these rituals and Jesus. It is Jesus alone can save us from our lack, from our failure, from our sin. It was never about circumcision to begin with. There was nothing inherently magical about the right of circumcision that could save a person, but it was always supposed to simply point to the God who chooses, the God who keeps, the God who calls, the God who consecrates. Circumcision itself couldn't save back then. It can't save now and won't be able to save in the future. And this was a major, major distinction that needed to be made. This is not just something that needed to be clarified in the early church days. This needs to be something that we're very, very clear on today. Because although we don't often question the power of circumcision to save or not to save, we question about other different rituals. We can substitute circumcision for anything else. If you were to ask Christians today, so 21st century Christians, if you were to ask Christians today, what does it mean to live as a Christian? They can give you different answers. For example, they could say, I just need to be a good and moral person. 
They could also say, I just need to believe in a quote unquote higher power or, you know, the man upstairs or whatever, you know, whatever way that you choose to say that I just need to believe in a higher power. Like there must be a God somewhere out there. And I think that's enough. Other people could say, I just need to fight for a good cause or the right cause. And you call that Christianity. Somebody else could say, I just need to love others as best as I can. It's just about love. It's about love. And so if I just try to love other people as best as I can, that makes me a Christian. Or other people, especially if you are raised in the church, you can just say, I just need to faithfully attend church. Go there every Sunday, give my tithes, serve once in a while, you know, and go to Bible studies and make sure that I'm just faithfully attending church. And that's what makes me a Christian. Now, if you look through all these, they sound pretty good. If somebody lived according to those things, I feel like you'd have a pretty upright, upstanding citizen, right? A very moral person, a good person. Somebody you could say like, well, they don't go to church and they don't believe in Jesus, but they're a really good person, right? All those things sound pretty good, but these are all non-gospel. None of these things can save. Some of these at best, like at best, best might be the outworking, might be the fruit, might be the visible and natural extension of the gospel, a byproduct, but it is not the source of salvation in itself. None of these things. If you were to live your entire life according to these maxims, according to these principles, you would still not be righteous before a holy God. In today's day and age, it feels like our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of what it means to truly believe in Jesus, to adhere to his word, to work out our salvation, that is constantly under revision in this day and age. It's constantly under revision, depending on what the trend or what the emphasis of the moment is. In our response to this, in the midst of the watering down of the gospel, should be to anchor ourselves in the truth that Jesus and Jesus alone can save us from our lack And from our failure. Now I love that the Bible is full of sinners. Like you and me, right? The the Bible is full of them. They're murderers. They're adulterers. Thieves. They're liars. They're rapists. They're people who murdered out of jealousy. People who stole out of greed. People who lied their way through life because of insecurity. The Bible has it all. Like any sin you name, the Bible probably has it there. And it doesn't make any excuse for them, right? The, the people that are lying, the people that are murdering, the people that are committing adultery, it, the Bible doesn't make an excuse for them. It doesn't say, well, you know, if you take into account their upbringing, their personality type, you know, if you, you know, if you were to kind of know their past story, then, you know, like, I think you should cut them a little bit of slack, Or the the Bible doesn't say, well, if you take into account their circumstances, it's kind of understandable why they would do what they did. But the Bible, instead of giving justifications and instead of giving excuses, 
The God of the Bible gives something much, much better. The God of the Bible gives redemption. So much better than excuses. So much better than justifications. The God of the Bible acknowledges the brokenness of humanity and gives the remedy in the form of a bleeding, broken God nailed to a cross. Now, depending on how you've been brought up, depending on what your uh, upbringing was, if you were raised in the church, you might have different experiences within the church. Now, I don't know if you can tell already, my testimony, I I was a very straight-laced person. I was a goody two-shoes, and I think I probably still am in many ways, right? I wasn't the kind of, like, I never did drugs, like, I never got drunk, like, all, I, I was fairly, you know, obedient to my parents, and so I lived a very upright life. And for most of my life, I felt like, well, religion is a good thing. I guess maybe other people need it a bit more than I do. And so I viewed my life, like, relatively good, relatively moral, relatively successful, respectable. And for that reason, it took me such a long time to even begin to understand that I needed forgiveness, even begin to understand just how broken I was, how it defines sin a very particular way. And it had, it felt like it had nothing to do with me. It felt like that's a problem for someone else. And someone else needs this Jesus that they're talking about. The moment if, you know, I I grew up in the church But the moment where I believe I had like the clearest revelation of Jesus and the gospel um, was right around fourth or fifth grade. So in fourth or fifth grade, I went to a youth retreat. Who, Who here grew up going to youth retreats? Yeah, yeah. So like that's where like you have the bonfires and like you have you know like you sing around the bonfire with you know with uh, with a guitar and you do all these different games and that was the kind of youth retreat that I went to. But one of the things that they did there, you know, it was presenting the gospel, and then they sat all of us down in a circle, and then they had the deaconesses, the the deacons. So like. For me, it was like my friend's mom, right? My friend's parents, like mom and dad. They actually got down on their knees and they washed our feet. So just imagine with me, if you grew up in a Korean church, that's a big deal. Like you grow up thinking, you know, like I can treat my peers however, but like my parents and my parents... You know, peers, it's like, you know, like very, like 90 degrees, like, like that's the kind of relationship you have with the adults. And for a fourth, uh, fourth grader, fifth grader, whenever that was, for me, to, little Susie to be sitting there in a little plastic chair and for a deaconess, like my friend's mom, you know, for a deaconess to get down on her knees to take off my shoes and my socks. It was like nasty because we've been running around all day for her to, to do that and then to begin to wash my feet. And then she began to pray for me and she was crying, you know, and really pleading for my soul. That did something to me as a fourth and fifth grader. That it broke something in me because I feel like up until then I felt like, well, um, I think I'm good enough. 
I'll just try to get better with every year, but I think I'm good enough. But seeing such an extravagant act of service, that was very humiliating in many ways for the person who was serving me in that moment. For someone of that stature, of that respectability in the whole community, for them to get down on their knees and wash the feet of a fourth grader, to do that and to do it with love in their heart, that, that completely broke me, something about that act of servant service. And what occurred to me while my, my feet were being washed, it was, man, if I feel this unworthy because a deaconess is washing my feet, how much more unworthy would I feel if it was God himself washing my feet? If it was Jesus, the son of God, who got down on his knees and washed my feet. And for me, that did something. It stripped me of all my pride, stripped me of everything that I felt like I was owed. And it brought me to that place of realizing there's no God like this God. There's no savior like the savior. Like I cannot repay for what he's done. I cannot earn my way for what he's given. That's the kind of God that this is. And I feel like that was probably the first moment that the gospel hit my heart in such an impactful and powerful way. Until then, it had been just religion. It had been just, you know, reading through scripture and memorizing things and learning principles. But in that moment, I felt like for the first time I understood this God called Jesus Christ. Now, depending on what culture you've been raised in, there will be different things that are offensive to you about the gospel. And one of the most common ways that the gospel offends people who are raised in a bit more of a Western um, culture is the starting point of the gospel that we all fall short of the glory of God. We are all lost. We're all prideful, sinful, hopeless without Jesus. And that is the starting point. There is none that is righteous. The gospel doesn't come to us and put its arm around us and say, there, there, you're actually not that bad. It actually properly diagnoses us as someone who's completely lost without the grace of Christ. It unapologetically says, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, as big or small as you think it is, the wages of all sin is death. All deserve death. And that needs to be our starting point. We are all united in our desperate cry for saving mercy that none of us deserve. Sometimes we look around us and measure ourselves against somebody else. It's like, well, I'm pretty bad, but not as bad as that guy. Or like, well, I, I feel like I did pretty well this week. But we're all, relatively speaking, measuring ourselves and never fully realizing that no matter how high up this ladder we go, we're never going to get to holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Perfection. And that is what we are measured against. So if there's a lie in our culture that we are probably very embedded in, it's that, you know, like you just need more self-esteem or like you, you just need somebody to encourage you without the mercy of Jesus. All of us 
I've fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if I'm a pastor. I've also definitely fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter what title you carry, how long you've been a Christian for, what kind of service you do to the church. Like, hey, I come to morning service, you know, for the last 10 years. That in itself will not save me. If I were to give my body, you know, and serve the poor, serve those who are neglected in society, even that will not save me. I need to understand that the start of the gospel, the beginning point of the gospel, is that no matter what works I do, I am lost apart from the mercy of Christ. So Jesus alone can save us from our lack and from our failure. That is the starting point of the gospel. And we cannot compromise when it comes to that culture today will slightly push us into that compromise to say well you know like humanity is kind of good you know and we just need to try to do better and maybe we need to get behind the right causes maybe we need to do the right things um and that in itself will get you where you need to be that's not what the bible says the bible says our starting point is utter brokenness and death and that, and only, only in that place can Jesus begin to save. Only in that place can Jesus be our Savior. Second thing that Paul is alluding to very strongly in this part of his letter to the Philippians is that Jesus alone can save us, not just from our lack and from our failure, but more importantly, especially in his case, Jesus alone can save us from our pride and our success. Did you know we need deliverance from our pride and from our success? Because we need the mercy of Jesus, not just when we are going through a valley season and we've hit rock bottom and nothing is going according to plan. We need the mercy of Jesus, especially when we are on the mountaintop. When things are going our way. When everything that we've dreamed of is coming our way. Especially in those moments where we're most tempted to think, oh, my hard work got me here. My devotion got me here. My sacrifice got me here. It's especially in those moments, especially in those moments that we need to be reminded that Jesus and Jesus alone can save. Because this is something that we seldom think about. When we have achieved success, when we achieve accomplishments, we very slowly begin to steer away from the gospel. It's easier to identify our need for grace when we've hit rock bottom. That's when we see our fallenness most most clearly. There's like no getting around it, right? We can't deny it. Like, oh my gosh, like I'm in a very, very bad place. I really need the mercy of Christ. That's very easy to identify. But when we are doing well, when we are on the mountaintop, when we are at the top of our game, when we've worked hard and made sacrifices and we're seeing the fruit of our labor, it is then that we need to be reminded that Jesus alone can save us from our pride and our success. This is what Paul is saying all over, you know, in this section. He's saying, no matter what category you measure me in, I come out top. I'm actually doing pretty well by the world's standards. You want to talk about circumcision? Let me show you what it looks like to be a Jew of the Jews, right? If you were to measure me by pedigree and lineage, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the elite tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. So I'm like top notch, like right up there. 
in terms of the law, so in terms of religious prestige and accomplishment, I'm a Pharisee. It doesn't get any better than that. Like I've reached the top of my career. In terms of zeal and passion, he is a persecutor of the church. It doesn't get any better than that either. Like I'm so zealous, I'm so passionate to defend this faith that I will persecute these people that call themselves Christian. That is just how zealous I am. And in terms of righteousness under the law, have I adhered to these religious standards? If you were to look at my life, if you were to measure my life, you would see that I am blameless. That is what Paul is saying. No matter what way you turn it, he is a real deal. He's a full package. He's checked off every box. He's the best of the best. And yet he takes all of that, all those accomplishments, and he looks at it and he says, this is all rubbish. This is all garbage. Actually, the actual translation is, is almost, um, it's like a bad word, actually. So, um, poop? Yes, that's, that's the word that he uses. All of this is a pile of steaming poop. That's what he's saying. Like all those things that I hold so dear, you would never look at a, the turd and be like, oh, such a good turd. Like, you know, oh, I, I'm going to treasure this. No, it's like you've, I don't know. What do you do when you have a turd? I've never had a turd in my hand. So I'm like, fling it away. Like you want nothing to do with it. It is, it's it's garbage, right? And that's what he's saying. He's saying all those things that people envy me for, all those things that people look at my life and they say, wow, like he did well for himself. All those things are nothing but excrement. They're nothing but rubbish, garbage. Because sometimes it's easy to see our sin when it looks a certain way. But let me tell you, our sin can be very, very sneaky. When we live the most upright life, when our guard is down, and when we, when we feel like we've accomplished everything that we need to in life, it's in those moments that our sin is probably most hidden, most well camouflaged as righteousness. If you were to take even the most upright, even the most righteous person anywhere in the world, barring Jesus, anybody in the world, like anybody, Mother Teresa, like if you were to take, to, you were to take somebody and ask them, you know, are you, have you never sinned? Like no moment have you sinned, no moment have you envied, no moment have you been jealous, no moment have you felt hatred, no moment have you cut somebody down, no moment have you ceased to worship God. Like if you were to measure anybody, even the most upstanding of people, they would all fall short of the glory of God. And this comes out often in our lives, when we feel like we're doing really well, when we feel like there's nothing in me but blamelessness, there's nothing that people could point to and, and, and bring about correction, it's in those moments when you feel and you realize that you are actually a sinner. In those moments, you realize that there is a hidden pride inside of you, that there is something inside that looks down on others. There's something inside that judges others according to your standards. And in those moments, you realize, yeah, I don't, I fall short of the glory of God too. I definitely need mercy, probably more because my sin is so hidden because nobody is, is, is going to catch it. 
Because it is something so internal and something so well camouflaged as righteousness that I don't even realize myself that this is sin and this requires God's mercy. Jesus alone can save us from our pride and from our success. Probably pride and success are probably the the most dangerous in our lives to become arrogant become self-sufficient, and begin to believe that we are beyond the mercy of Christ. And so here is what Paul exhorts us with today as we glory and as we rejoice in the gospel. Jesus alone can save us from our sins. Jesus alone can save us from our pride and our self-righteousness. And he calls us to lay it all down, both the good And the bad, the things that you feel disqualify you and the things that you feel qualify you, lay all those things down and embrace Jesus and Jesus alone. This is what the Apostle Paul calls knowing Jesus. All those things, all those things that are good, those things that that make me a good citizen, that make me a good Jew, all those things, I've laid them all down so that I would know Christ, that would cling to this man, Jesus. This is what he calls knowing Jesus. When all your boast is in Christ. When all your forgiveness is in Christ. When all your hope of resurrection is in Christ. It's not just an intellectual understanding of this historical person that walked on earth on the first century. It's not an understanding or an adherence to a religious system. Like behave a particular way, speak a particular way, spend your time a particular way, spend your money a particular way. It's not that. It's knowing this person of Jesus Christ, letting go of all those other things that you feel both disqualify you and qualify you for God's love. Laying all those things down and allowing Christ and Christ alone to be your boast. Do you know Christ? Do you know him as a savior? As someone who is bigger than your sins, bigger than your past, bigger than your biggest, your most deepest, darkest secrets. Do you know him as your savior? Do you know Jesus as your Lord, your, your master in this life? Lord over every decision, Lord over every area of your heart. Do you know him as Lord? Do you know him as your healer and your provider? As someone who is still healing today, who can heal your body, heal your soul, someone who can provide in instances where there is no other way, do you know him as your beloved, the one your heart clings to, the one your affections are poured over? Do you know him as your beloved? Do you know him as a humble servant, the one who lay aside the glory that was due to him and he became a servant of all? even unto death. Do you know him as a humble servant? And do you know him as a mighty God and returning king, the one that we ought to fear, the one that we ought to look forward to, the one that we are looking forward to in his return? Do we know Jesus? It is not a very easy question to answer in many ways because we're still growing in our knowledge of Christ. But my exhortation to all of us is to never think that we've reached the end of it. Never feel like, oh, we're Christian enough. 
You know, like we know enough about this guy, Jesus. We know enough of the Bible. We know enough about church culture. But to be ambitious in one area in life, I must know Christ. Like I want to excel as this thing, at this thing. If, if I were to pour my entire life into one endeavor, not climbing the corporate ladder, not having a perfect family, not living a successful life that others will envy, but if I were to be ambitious about one thing in life, it is this. By the end of my life, I want to say that I know Christ. I know him intimately, deeply, personally, and he knows me. I pray that that is our ambition, that that is one thing that we're known for, one thing that we're hungry for, one thing that we don't compromise over, wanting to know Christ. And the more we know Christ, the more we're able to see him rightly and measure all those other lesser things, as good as they are in life, measure all those other lesser things and realize that they're a loss. They're rubbish. They are they're nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. You know, very recently, I read this quote from, you know, we, we, we know that although we experience religious freedom here in South Korea, just a few kilometers up north, there's a persecuted church there, right? And for decades, for over 70 years, they've lived in persecution. And there's still Christians there. Believe it or not, even after 70 years, that means that it's gone through generation to generation. It means that there's been evangelism happening from generation to generation within concentration camps, within wherever it is, in the underground church. There's been that. And very recently, I came across something that somebody in the North Korean church said. And this was within a conversation of how, you know, we're praying for you. We're praying for you in North Korea. We're praying for you guys to make it out well. We're praying for your deliverance. We're praying for your protection. And a North Korean Christian, he said this, you pray for us, we pray for you. You have so much. You put your faith in your money and in your freedom In North Korea, we have neither money nor freedom, but we have Christ. And we found that he's sufficient. What does it look like to cling to Jesus that way? It doesn't mean that you need to be part of an underground church, a persecuted church. But what does it look like when Christ is everything? What does it look like when all your hope, all your boast, all your forgiveness... All your chances at a second start, all of that is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? That is when we see resurrection power at work. That is when we see a church that doesn't take pride in itself but boasts in Christ. That's when we see God moving in miraculous ways. I'm going to close with this as I ask our praise team to come back up. You know, the sermon series is a fifth part of the sermon series. The sermon series is titled Christ, Our Joy. Christ, Our Joy. Let me ask you, how often do we, if we are honest with ourselves, if we're really honest with ourselves and vulnerable, how often do we fill that blank with something else? Sometimes we think, man, if I only were to get this job, then like, 
think my life would be fulfilled. Or man, if only this relationship worked out with so-and-so, I feel like my life would be fulfilled. Or man, if only this family issue was taken care of, I feel like my life would be fulfilled. Or man, if this sickness, if God dealt with this sickness, I feel like my life would be fulfilled. That would be my joy. How often do we say instead of Christ being our joy, we put something else in there. How often do we fill in the blank with success or significance or admiration or validation? How, do, how often do we fill it up with something else? But the call of a Christian is to cling to Christ and to Christ alone. And very often in our lives, we have so many different circumstances where that is tested. We're through trouble, through inconvenience, through pain, through sickness, through all these circumstances that are beyond our control. God draws close to us and asks us, Can I be your joy? Can I be the one thing you're holding on to? When everything else is taken away, can I be the boast? When everything goes wrong, can I be the gladness of your heart? Can I be that? I'm going to read for us the passage that we read again. And this time I'm going to read it from a transliteration, uh, a paraphrase uh, from the message. And it's the very same verses. And it reads this way. And that's about it, friends. Be glad in God. I don't mind repeating what I have written in earlier letters and hope you don't mind hearing it again. Better safe than sorry. So here goes. Steer clear of the barking dogs, those religious busybodies, all bark and no bite. All they're interested in is appearances. Knife-happy circumcisers, I call them. The real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. We, we couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know it, even though we can list what many might think are impressive credentials. You know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all these things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant, dogdom. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. 
I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules. When I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. So here's a hope that Paul is talking about. You are no longer weighed by your deeds. You're no longer measured by your achievements. You're no longer the sum of your merits, nor the sum of your faults. You're no longer only as valuable as you're successful or useful. But Christ is enough. He is sufficient. He can save you from the worst of your sins, the deepest, darkest secrets you carry, the heavy weight of guilt and shame that bear down on you. He can save you from that. And he can also save you from your pride and self-sufficiency, your moments when you look around and you internally say, I'm probably better off than others. The moments you begin to think you don't need mercy, you don't need grace, and that you're beyond that. God can save you from that as well. I'm going to ask us just to take a moment to pray to God. And this is what I want us to ask. What has become my joy? What has become that non-negotiable? What has become that thing that I hold on to for a feeling of accomplishment and success? It can be something good. It doesn't necessarily have to be something bad. But what has taken the place of Christ as my source of joy? pray for us. God, we thank you that you're not the God who gives us a remedy without first giving us a proper diagnosis. We're lost without you. We fall into either rebellion or religion. Either way, we are lost without you. And so we say to you once again that we need you We need your mercy in our lives. We need to see our broken state rightly and begin to cry out for more of you. I pray, Father, that we would not be content with anything less than the gospel. That no other principle to live by, no other system 
to adhere to could take the place of the beauty and the glory of the gospel. You're a God who sees us fully in our brokenness and brings about the redemption, the forgiveness, the grace, and the mercy that we could never have dreamed of. You give us what we don't deserve. And we know, God, that it came at a high cost, at a high price for you. I pray, Father, that as we meditate on these things, you would open up our eyes afresh, you soften our hearts once again to the beauty of your gospel. You remind us, God, that you love to be known, that we can draw close, not because of anything we have done, but because of what you have done already for us. We can boldly approach that throne of grace and know, God, that we don't have to grovel. Know, God, that we don't have to earn our way in. But through the spilt blood of Jesus Christ, we are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. That we can draw near and know that we're fully accepted. Living life in a freedom that we never dreamed of. Father, would you hem us in behind and before? When we stray, would you draw us close? When we lose our way, God, would you come find us? May this be an ongoing journey of learning to know, know Christ in our lives. See the gospel at work in our lives. May all of this bring you great glory.